Uh, in here, if you've been with us uh, for a few weeks, you know that we're uh, looking at significant conversations that Jesus had with men and women uh, through the Gospel of John. And today we're going to be in John chapter 8, looking at a conversation that Jesus had with some new believers. And as we look at this conversation, uh, I'll of course have the verses up on the screen, you can follow along that way, but if you're here this morning and would like to follow along in a in a paper Bible and you don't have one, our ushers are coming down the aisle uh, right now, and if you'll just signal them somehow, uh, they will make sure you get a Bible, and if you don't have one at home, please consider just taking this one home uh, with you uh, as, as our gift. Uh, before we look together at uh, this story, let's pray. Lord, as we listen in this morning to this conversation, I pray that we would not just be observers, uh, but that we would hear with, with the ears that you intend for us to hear with, and that these words that Jesus speaks uh, would, would move past our ears and through our minds and down into our hearts and that they would find good soil there and uh, bear fruit there. We invite you this morning to change us. Uh, more than invite, God, we, we beg that you would do that. Make us different people than the ones we came in as this morning. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as you may remember, last week we took a, a break from uh, our series for Youth Sunday. Uh, sorry, I, I didn't come with a wig this morning, but uh, before last Sunday, uh, we looked at Jesus' conversation with a woman who had been caught, uh, the, the religious leader said, in the very act of adultery. And we heard Jesus' powerful words to her, I don't condemn you. Now go and leave your life of sin. And after that conversation in the beginning of John 8, Jesus makes some profound statements. Uh, in John 8, 12, he announces that he is the light of the world. He's already said that he is the source of living water in, in chapter 4. He said that he was the bread of life in chapter 6, then the light of the world. It, it's as if Jesus is saying he is the source of everything we need. Huh. So uh, we pick up this story in verse 30, where John tells us that as Jesus was saying these things, many believed in him. Many believed in him. This is, this is a traveling preacher's dream, right? Hundreds, maybe, maybe thousands are trusting in Jesus, getting saved. I'm sure, uh, just from what we know, the little bit we know of the disciples, they're thrilled as, as they see this movement of, of people following Jesus growing, more and more people believing. But Jesus isn't 
so quick to be excited about it. He, he knows what they seem to have forgotten. Because you see, back in John chapter 2, we're told that because of the miraculous signs Jesus did in Jerusalem at the Passover celebration, many began to trust in him. But Jesus didn't trust them because he knew all about people. No one needed to tell him about human nature, for he knew what was in each person's heart. There in John 2, Jesus saw the shallowness of their commitment. They had maybe said the right prayer, but they, but they lacked spiritual depth, and Jesus knew that it wasn't going to last. We saw the same thing in John chapter 6 when Jesus started talking about a deeper commitment. He said he was the bread of life and unless you eat this bread, you have no part of me. And many people, many of his disciples, it says, many believers turned away and said, this is weird. This is too hard. And so we come to John chapter 8, and we read that many believed in him, and it seems that Jesus wants to make sure that they understand what they're signing up for, which is important. So in verse 31, we read, Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you continue in my word, you really are my disciples. You will know the truth. And the truth will set you free. These uh, words of Jesus in, in these two verses uh, are some of Jesus' best-known words, I think. Uh, they're, in, they're in Latin uh, on the seal of the University of Portland. Um, they're uh, in English, well, uh, without a Bible reference, but they're, they're there, okay? Uh, they're in English... Uh, in, engraved in the, in the facade of the, the library at the University of Texas in Austin. Again, with, with no reference to Jesus. Interestingly, the CIA uses the first part of this quote as their motto. You shall know the truth. I was thinking what they probably mean is that they will know the truth and that truth may land you in prison. I... I don't know. We shall know the truth. Um, anyway, it, it seems to me today that most people have no idea, first of all, who said these words, and secondly, what they mean. What is Jesus saying here? Uh, we're going to come back to it in a little bit, but at a, at a really simple level, Jesus is saying that to be a true believer, a true follower or, or disciple of Jesus you have to get his words, his teaching, his message deep down inside you. Uh, the Greek word that John uses here is meno. It, it means to permanently remain, permanently abide. Uh, he'll, he'll use the same word in John 15 when he talks about the vine and the branches. Unless you remain in me, unless you abide in me, and my words remain or abide in you. And, and Jesus is saying that if we'll do that, if we'll get his words, his teaching, his message deep down inside us, we'll come to know the truth. And that truth, he says, will set us free. 
Now, he's going to show us that the truth he's talking about isn't some set of intellectual or even theological proposals that we need to give mental assent to, that we need to agree with. That's not what Jesus is talking about. Jesus is going to show us that the truth is a person, and that person is Jesus himself. Like I said, we're going to come back to that in a little bit, but most people who quote these words of Jesus don't understand that at all, right? And it appears that Jesus' first listeners didn't either because immediately they begin to challenge Jesus. Verse 33, we are descendants of Abraham, they answered him, and we have never been enslaved to anyone. How can you say we will become free? Now, at one level, this seems like an absurd statement for these Jews to make. Why do I say that? They have been enslaved by literally every world power as long as they have existed, right? Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Greece, Syria, and now Rome had all held the Jews in political captivity. So what are they saying? Well, they probably don't mean that. Probably what they mean is is they're referring to their ethnic and religious superiority. And you you can sort of hear it in in the words here. You see, the rabbis of Jesus' day taught that all Israelites were sons of the kingdom because, why? Because they were descendants of Abraham. And so their ancestry, at least in their minds, made them superior to all other people. And they believed that because of their lineage, their place in God's kingdom was secure. It was was settled. In fact, it didn't even matter what they did, right? Well, if, if this is what they meant, or if they were just delusional and and didn't remember that they had been held captive by all of those other kingdoms, Uh, Jesus gets right to the heart of the matter uh, in verse 34 and shows us what he means, okay? So verse 34, Jesus responded, I tell you the solemn truth. This is that verily, verily, truly, truly, listen to what I'm about to say, he says here, okay? I tell you the solemn truth. Everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. A slave does not remain in the household forever, but a son does remain forever. Therefore, if the Son, capital S, Jesus, sets you free, you really will be free. Or in some translations, you will be free indeed. I've said before that I think Jesus is the most brilliant man who who ever lived. And I think this is an example, one of the examples of it, because here Jesus summarizes a profound truth in in this really simple uh, statement. It's a truth that that counselors and and psychologists continue to recognize in in therapy sessions today. Sinful, addictive behaviors create these these channels, these paths, both in the physiological and biochemical uh, 
um, architecture of our minds. And those channels, those ruts, if you will, become nearly impossible for us to break out of on our own. Now, most people don't think that they're enslaved. They, they, they sort of reject that. They want to believe that, that they can quit any time they want. How many alcoholics have you heard say, I'm not an alcoholic. I, I could quit any time I want. Or, or drug users, I could quit anytime I want, or any other sinful behavior. I'm free. I, I can do this if I want, and I can quit anytime I want. But the fact is that sin enslaves us. And Jesus illustrates the point by saying that even though a slave might get to be in the house, they're not really a part of the family. Only sons and daughters are a part of the family. And he uses the same word there, meno, that he used in verse 31 when he said, if they continue or remain in my words, they'll know the truth and be set free. A slave doesn't remain meno in the house, but a son or daughter does. Verse 37, Jesus says, I know you are descendants of Abraham, but you are trying to kill me because my word is not welcome among you. I speak what I have seen in the presence of the Father. Therefore, you do what you have heard from your Father. Jesus doesn't refute their uh, claim here of being descendants of Abraham. He says, I know you're descendants of Abraham. But he, but he raises the conversation up a notch, and he begins to address the issue of spiritual parentage, okay? which is very different than ancestry. And he says that because his words are not welcome among them, they're acting like their true father and trying to kill him, Jesus. This group isn't tracking with Jesus. They're, they're, they're really not listening. They're not hearing him yet. They, they started by saying, we're descendants of Abraham. And, and Jesus says, well, you're acting just like your father. And then in verse 39, they answer, our father is Abraham. And Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, if Abraham was your father, you would do what Abraham did. But now you are trying to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. Abraham did not do this. You're doing what your father does. See, when God spoke to Abraham, Abraham listened and he obeyed. God didn't even make it very clear what he was asking for Abraham to do. I want you to get up from, from, from home, from this place that you've known all your life, and I want you to go where? I'm not going to tell you yet. I want you to go to a place that I will show you. And Abraham said, okay, I'll do it. Abraham listened and obeyed, but when Jesus speaks truth from the Father, they want to kill him. They might be descendants of Abraham, but they are definitely not his spiritual children. And it's at this point that this conversation turns really nasty. Uh, in the last part of verse 41, they said to Jesus, we were not born as a result of immorality 
insert parentheses, like some people we know, we have only one Father, God himself. Uh, this is, is clearly a slur against the, the rumored story of Jesus' birth. Uh, while Scripture clearly teaches us that Jesus was conceived in Mary by the Holy Spirit, the rumors, of course, were that Mary and Joseph were engaged and just couldn't wait, right? Or another variation on that was that uh, Mary had had a fling with someone other than Joseph and had gotten pregnant. Either way, what these people are calling Jesus is an illegitimate blank. And unlike you, they say, we have only one father, God himself. And Jesus says, oh no, 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 no. If God were your father, you would love me, for I have come from God and I am now here. I have not come on my own initiative, but he sent me. Notice Jesus doesn't feel the need to engage them uh, about their slur against his birth certificate, right? He wants them to understand who he is and who his father is. And his father is not their father. In verse 44, he makes it just as plain as day. He calls it out, he names it. He says, you people are from your father, the devil, and you do, you want to do what your father desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not uphold the truth because there is no truth in him. I think Jesus is going all the way back to the garden and the lies of the devil there, the lies that resulted in their spiritual death. He's a murderer. His lies are murderous. He continues, whenever he lies, he speaks according to his own nature because he is a liar. In fact, he is the father of lies. But because I am telling you the truth, you do not believe me. I think it's important to understand Jesus isn't lowering himself to this name-calling game that, that they're engaged in. Jesus is moving toward a, a monumental truth about who he is, a, a truth that has the power, catch this, to set free those who will remain in it or keep in slavery and death those who refuse it. And, and Jesus shows us where this is going in verse 45. It is precisely because he is speaking the truth that they don't believe him. It's not that they're dull. It's because of who their father is, the father of lies. And Jesus is speaking truth and their unwillingness to hear the truth proves who their spiritual father is, the devil, the father of lies. Verse 47, he continues to explain his point. The one who belongs to God listens and responds to God's words. You don't listen and respond. Why? 
Because you don't belong to God. Remember, Jesus is speaking not to, this is a religious group that he's speaking to. Uh, this, this isn't the world, right, that he's saying these things to. He's speaking to a group of people who are certain, absolutely certain of their place in God's family because of their ancestry. And Jesus, who is also Jewish, is telling them that their ancestry doesn't make them true sons and daughters of God. Now, Jesus isn't saying that being Jewish is bad. Uh, like I said, he is a Jew. Uh, God's plan all along was to use Jewish people as his instruments to reach the whole world. They were supposed to be special. But when they stopped listening to God, they stopped being his true children. And as we might guess, they didn't really appreciate being called children of the devil. So they resorted to some more mudslinging. In verse 48, they call him a demon-possessed Samaritan. This is like the queen mother of racial slurs for them, right? Not just demon-possessed, a demon-possessed Samaritan. Jesus doesn't even deal with the Samaritan part because he, he, re, he rejects that opinion of that people group. But he responds by assuring them that he's not demon-possessed. Why? Because all he has done his whole life is to try to honor and glorify the Father. In fact, he says, show me where I've sinned. Just show me. I haven't. I've only tried to bring honor and glory to the Father. And then he returns to his, his beginning argument, verse 51. I tell you the solemn truth, verily, verily, truly, listen up. If anyone keeps my word, he will never see death, ever. See, Jesus brings it back to the point of adhering to his teaching, his message, his words. And for the person who does, they will be set free from sin and the spiritual death it brings. But these Jews are so completely missing what Jesus is saying. They, they, they go back to their Abraham argument. They're, they're absolutely determined to cling to their ethnic superiority as their birthright in God's people. So in verse 52, they say, now we know you have a demon. Abraham, remember what they're responding to, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. They say, now we know you have a demon. Abraham died, and so did the prophets. You say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death, ever. Are you greater than our father Abraham, who died? Even the prophets died. Who do you pretend to be? Now, the, the Jews are making a, a couple of accusations here. 
First, I think he's a nut job because, as everyone knows, Abraham and the other prophets have died. Jesus' statement that the person who listens to him will never die is, is obviously nonsense to them. Look around you, Jesus. People die. God-fearing people die. Of course, they don't realize that Jesus is talking about a spiritual death. Later in John's gospel, we'll hear Jesus say, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live again, even if he dies. He's talking about an everlasting life, a resurrected life. And they don't get that. The second thing that they're accusing Jesus of is, is they sense that Jesus is making himself out to be greater than Abraham which would be, to these people, nearly as bad as blasphemy. At the very least, it was evidence of, of some demonic influence, right? So he's either just a nut job or he's got a demon, right? Jesus responds in verse 54. If I glorify myself, my glory is worthless. The one who glorifies me is my Father, about whom you people say he is our God. Yet you do not know him, but I know him. If I were to say I don't know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I obey his teaching. Your father Abraham was overjoyed that he would see my day. He saw it and rejoiced. So Jesus says he isn't pretending to be anyone other than who he is. He's not the one glorifying himself. The Father is glorifying him. And then he makes this really strange comment about Abraham being overjoyed to see his day. And he says that Abraham saw it and rejoiced. What did he mean? Uh, we're not positive. Many Bible scholars believe that Jesus is pointing back to Genesis chapter 22 when, for those of you that, that remember the story, when God provided a ram in the thicket. Remember that? A ram to be the sacrifice instead of Abraham's son. I think Jesus is saying that Abraham somehow recognized that that ram caught in the thicket was, was foreshadowing the Messiah, the one who would come as the sacrificial lamb who would take away the sins of the world. I think that's what Jesus is, is saying there, but the crowd still doesn't get what Jesus is talking about. So they say in verse 57, you weren't 50 years old yet, and you've seen Abraham? Can you, you just... You can just see or hear the tone, right? Abraham lived 2,000 years before Jesus. It's like every time Jesus opens his mouth, these, these people think it just gets more and more bizarre. And it seems that Jesus is... is finally fed up or, or just done with the discussion. 
And maybe it's because he's just tired of talking to these people who are deaf to the truth. So then um, Jesus, Jesus drops the bomb. Uh, the, the, the point, I think, that, that this whole conversation was leading up to. Jesus said to them, I tell you the solemn truth. Listen up, he says. Before Abraham was, I am. There is absolutely no question what Jesus is saying here. Uh, There is only one explanation for the strange sentence structure that we see here. Nobody talks like this. Before Abraham was, I am. No, that's not, that's not good grammar, right? Before Abraham was, I was. You might say that. But not before Abraham was, I am. What's going on? Jesus is claiming for himself the personal name of God. Yahweh. The name that, that God used at the burning bush with Moses. And in saying this, Jesus is not only claiming to have seen Abraham 2,000 years earlier, he's claiming to have existed before the creation of the world. He is claiming to be God in the flesh. And finally, in this long conversation, the crowd finally understands what he is saying. It takes till here before they understand what he's saying. But they understand exactly what he is saying. Their actions make it clear that this was not just... They didn't hear this as some claim of of first century time travel, right? Jesus, they knew, was claiming to be God. A claim that was deserving of death by stoning, which is... Exactly what they intend to do in verse 59 at the end of the chapter. I think this is uh, probably the longest conversation we're going to look at in our series. And I I debated about whether or not to go through the whole conversation or not. There's a a lot of repetition in it, right? Uh, A lot of Jewish nuance that I think can be hard for us to grasp. But I I think that the whole conversation shows us something really important. You remember where we started? In verse 30, we read that Jesus was talking, and as he talked, many believed in him. Verse 30. At the end of the conversation, verse 59, same conversation, same people. They pick up rocks to stone him. What in the world happened here? Many believed in him. They believed in him. The the word used there is they put their faith in him. They put their trust in him. What happened? 
how did these believers become unbelievers? And maybe more importantly for us this morning, how do we make sure this doesn't happen to us? I think the answer to that question is in verses 31 and 32, right back up at the top of the conversation. If you continue in my word, you really are my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. This is Jesus' thesis. This is his point for this conversation. He keeps uh, returning to it throughout the conversation. The, the Jews keep wanting to make it about something else, but, but Jesus in, in, in different ways, sometimes using different words, keeps trying to hammer home this truth. Like I said, much of the conversation is, is rooted in their Jewishness, which may or may not feel applicable to you this morning, but I want to say this. Jesus' thesis is the same for all people of all generations, regardless of, of their, their ethnicity, their race, their, their religious background, whatever. His words are true for everyone. What are those? Jesus says that everyone who sins is a slave to sin and that that sin leads to death. People who are in that condition are called children of the devil, who is a murderous liar. But, he says, anyone who listens to his words, really listens, keeps on listening, getting those words, that teaching down inside them, those people discover truth. And that truth will set them free from the slavery to sin and death. I want to spend the last few minutes here just trying to make sure we understand what Jesus is saying. I think the first thing is this. Jesus is looking for true disciples. He's really not interested in getting more people to go to church. I don't think he's really that interested in, in hearing people pray the sinner's prayer, though in and of itself, that's, that's not bad. It's not wrong. What seems clear here is that Jesus wants people who will listen to his words, his teaching, and do it. You know, assurance of salvation is a wonderful thing. It's a promise that those who are truly Jesus' disciples can hold on to with confidence because of the faithfulness of God. But hear me on this. Nowhere, nowhere does Jesus promise that assurance for people who are not his true disciples. Let me say it this way. It's Matthew 25, I think. He promises it to the sheep, not the goats who are pretending to be sheep, who claim to know him but, but don't really. And so if you're here this morning and, and you think of yourself as a believer, but there's no evidence of, of your being a true disciple, 
pray that you will hear these words of Jesus this morning. They're really important words. The the second thing I see in Jesus' words here is a promise. That those who remain or abide or continue in his teaching know the truth. Later on in John's gospel, we'll, we'll hear Pilate scoff at Jesus. Truth? Pfft. What is truth? Today, many people claim that there's no such thing as an absolute truth. They talk about my truth and, and your truth. Whatever you want to believe is true is, is, is fine with me. That doesn't hurt me and it, it doesn't bother me. That's your truth. I, I believe differently and then that's my truth, right? But throughout John's gospel, we're, we're going to see that Jesus himself is the truth. One of the clearest statements of that is in John 14 where Jesus says, I am the way... I am the truth. I am the life. And so when Jesus says the truth will set you free, he's not talking about some intellectual understanding that will come from a university or a religious institution or the CIA. He's talking about himself. And according to Jesus, being his disciple will lead to freedom from slavery. Slavery to what? Sin and death. But what is freedom? What is freedom? I think our Western ideas of freedom are really messed up. Because we think, and, 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 and we Americans may be more prone to this than anyone else on the globe, we think freedom means getting to do whatever we want to, Right? We think freedom means saying whatever we want to or protecting our rights to whatever it is you think you have a right to. But that's not freedom, not really. In a strange way, uh, if you define freedom like that, we can become slaves to our freedom. It's weird. But it happens. So if our American ideals of freedom are not true freedom, not being free indeed, like Jesus said, what is? Uh, I'd like to suggest this morning, and I, and I do this sometimes with, with people that I think are just great teachers of the Bible uh, and are wise and godly, uh, I'd, I'd like to suggest that John Piper's definition of freedom is a really, really good one for us this morning. And, and I'm going to have him put it up on the screen here. Piper says, you are fully free, or free indeed, when you have the desire, the ability, and the opportunity to do what will make you happy. That sounds good. A thousand years from now. Or maybe another way to say it, you're fully free, free indeed, 
when you have the desire, the ability, and the opportunity to do what will leave you with no regrets forever. Forever. What does he mean? Well, if you don't have the desire to do a thing, you're not fully free to do it. Whatever that thing is, right? If you don't have a desire to do it, it's not really freedom when you, when you do it. You, you might work up enough willpower to do that thing that you don't want to do, but no one would call that full freedom. They wouldn't call that truly free. It's, it's not the way we want to live. There's, there's, a, there's a constraint, there's a pressure on us that we don't want. So we're, we're forced to do this thing. That's desire. But if you have the desire to do something, but you don't have the ability to do it, well, you're not really free, are you? And if you have the desire and the ability to do something, but you lack the opportunity to do it, you're still not free to do it. And lastly, if you have the desire to do something and the ability to do it and the opportunity to do it, but it destroys you in the end, you're not fully free. Not truly free. Not free indeed. Because a thousand years from now, you won't be happy. You'll have regrets. And that eternal regretting is something we call hell. See, to be fully free, we, we have to have the desire and the ability and the opportunity to do what will make us happy forever with no regrets. And only Jesus, the truth, can do that for us. As we'll see when we get to John 10, the devil comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but Jesus comes to give abundant life, life with no regrets. And through his death and resurrection, Jesus has broken the power of sin and death forever. And as we put our trust in him, as we follow him, as we remain in his words. He gives us a new heart. He gives us new desires. He gives us the ability to be in right relationship with God. He gives us the opportunity to spend eternity with God. Eternity with no regrets. This is the freedom that Jesus promises to those who will follow him. And for those who do, he says, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Let me invite you to bow your heads here for a moment. This is so important. Far too many people have thought that they were a true disciple because of something other than what Jesus says here. For most of us, it's not our ancestry. It might be something else.
But, but ask yourself this morning, am I a believer who isn't a true disciple like the people in this conversation? Is Jesus just a, a good teacher, maybe a miracle worker, a kind of a cosmic Santa Claus? Or is Jesus the truth, all caps, who promises to set me free from my slavery to sin? And I, I think we have to ask ourselves this morning, is there some sin that I'm allowing to be the master over me? Are, are, are you willing to quit lying to yourself and thinking that that's freedom? That, that getting to do that thing is freedom? Are you ready this morning to receive the freedom that, that Jesus talks about? Lord, one of my fears is that our churches have way too many people who claim to believe in you but are not true disciples. So I pray this morning that all of us would soberly listen to your words in this passage. I pray that we would be true disciples who will enjoy you for eternity with no regrets. And we not be like those in this story who claim to believe, but in the end, pick up stones to kill you because you don't fit our idea of what Jesus should be. Holy Spirit, would you grow in us the desire to walk in the freedom that Jesus promises? And we pray this in the name of the one who is the way, the truth, and the life, Jesus. Amen.